Hey, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Countergath. Thanks for stopping by. On the early morning of April 19, 1775, events went down in the towns of Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, which, and this is certainly not an exercise in hyperbole, changed the world forever. To tell us the story that we all should know, given that its repercussions are still felt to this day, is June Bear, tour guide in the contemporary town of Lexington. So to get us set up, I'd like to know who are some of the major players or characters that we're going to talk about today. Okay, so some of the major ones would be here in Lexington. The leader of our militia was Captain John Parker. Our governor at the time, the governor of Massachusetts, was General Thomas Gage. He was the uh, head of all the militia in British North America. A couple of the other characters that are kind of involved... With uh, April 19th were Paul Revere and Samuel Adams and John Hancock. So kind of set up the scenario of what, you know, the, a few days before, I guess, the, the event that we're going to talk about. Kind of just leading up to it, it's more of a little bit of a couple of years where after the French and Indian Wars, which was the English one in the mid 1760s. I don't remember that date so well. Which, which in um, a way, that event is pretty much leads up to all of this. It's kind of the cause. It is, because after the end of that war, England was very happy because they won. But also the king discovered, well, rediscovered, that wars were very expensive and he needed more money for his treasury. And he felt he was taxing the British subjects or the, the those in England enough that he uh, then decided that he had all these colonies on the other side of the Atlantic, he would tax them. And that's where things started to get a little sticky as us here in the colonies just knew all about taxation and the need for the governments to have money. But we didn't like the fact that some government in another country in Britain where we had no say in that parliament was instituting taxes on us because we felt we needed a say in the taxes. Right, so... You know, taxing the Americans didn't seem like such an unfair thing, given that the mother country provided the troops and a lot of the uh, hardware to, to fight the Indians and the French. That is true. And as I said, we understood why they needed to tax. We just didn't like the fact that they didn't give us a say as into how much the taxes possibly would be or anything that had to do with the tax. It was England telling us what was happening with the taxes, and that we didn't like. And if I remember correctly, the Americans, or the colonies, I should say, because they weren't necessarily Americans just yet. Right. The colonies had said, yeah, we don't mind paying this, but we need to do it our own way because they, they wanted to have the tax so it didn't affect the economy adversely, I think it was. or Maybe it wasn't so much even that. It was just a seat in Parliament. Right. We had a seat in Parliament. And we believed, as the English... England did with the Magna Carta and all that, that we all had a say in what was going on. We should have equal rights to those subjects over in England. It's also a lot of the economy, because at the time, England then did start instituting taxes on our imports and exports. They were insisting that everything go through England. That was 
one of the things where there was different taxes that would come and go. Uh, they'd institute a tax. We complain a lot. They may alter the taxes a bit. It all finally led up the tea tax, the tax on tea. To give folks an idea of, of how ridiculous some of the taxes were or some of the uh, restrictions on the, the colonist economy, I remember there was one law that you could not make a hat in America. You had to buy all hats from England. And it wasn't just a hat for like show or like a ball cap. I mean, hats were vital to, you know, the winters and all that kind of thing. Yes. Uh, basically what it was is England wanted all our natural resources. So everything we had got shipped to England. They would process it and ship the finished goods back to us, which we were supposed to happily buy. Right. So like I said, there was different taxes coming and going. They finally end up with the the tea tax, and at that point, the king decides he'll tax it. It'll be a small enough tax that really won't notice too much of a difference of tea that doesn't come from England, perhaps from one of the other countries that imports tea, so that we should be able to buy the tax, or buy the tea, sorry. What we did object to was the fact that the tea that we bought could only be bought through the British East India Tea Company. And there were other tea companies selling tea, which here in the colonies we did tend to buy because it was a little cheaper, although it wasn't from England. So we did kind of buy black market or smuggled tea. And we didn't want the restrictions of having to buy from only one company. So we objected to that. Yeah, it's kind of a crony capitalism. Yes. The British East India Tea Company had a large stockpile of tea. We weren't buying a lot from there. We were probably buying it from the Dutch or the French. And so they had a big stockpile. They were getting a little bit in debt. So this was the king's way of getting them out of debt. It's like, here, we'll, we'll sell it to the uh, colonies and they have to buy your tea at the price that we say. And that's in December of 1770 when there was, it ended up being three ships came into our harbor full of tea and into our harbor as in Boston's harbor. Here in Massachusetts, we were told that we had to buy the tea. The ships would not leave until they were unloaded. And once unloaded, they were immediately taxed. And it's not that we didn't like the tea, but we didn't want to pay the tax. And eventually, on December 16th of 1770 is when we did unload the tea. Not the way England wanted it. We dumped it into the Boston Harbor. And <laughs> that was Boston. That was the Boston Tea Party. And at that point, we really upset the king. Now, how, how far is Boston from Lexington and Concord? Uh, Boston's about 11 miles from Lexington. And Concord's about another eight miles away from us here in Lexington. I know that in your town, the Reverend Jonas Clark was the one pastor, and all of the events leading up to this, he had a little bit to say, maybe not from the pulpit necessarily, but as a person, and he had great influence in the town. Can you talk about that? Yes. Jonas Clark was our pastor, and he was an ardent patriot, and I do believe, judging by some of the resolutions, because he did, he did help write resolutions for us where we would make a stand. One of them, which happened here in Lexington, was three days before the Boston Tea Party. Reverend Clark had written a resolution and 
town of Lexington, we all gathered on the green. He read out the resolution that we would not buy tea or any other such goods from England. And then we had a big bonfire and burnt all our tea. Wow. So that was major things that he did. And so the people just went without tea or they just had to buy the stuff that was black market? Uh, we went without tea. We weren't going to purchase anything British and because you, you probably couldn't guarantee which tea you were getting, we went without tea and tried to find other stuff to drink. Wow. Another thing I wanted to ask about is that, you know, when we're kids and we're kind of taught this history, of course they don't have time to get into the nuances, especially for little kids, but it makes it seem like all Americans were a unified voice, but as far as I know, it wasn't really the case. I mean, they say about a third were against the British, about a third were pro-British, and another third just didn't care or say one way or the other. Is that your understanding that in is, Lexington and Concord? That would be my understanding. Here in Lexington, it's my understanding that we were all patriots. That may have had a lot to do with how strong a character Jonas Clark is. We may have those who perhaps weren't patriots, but they never really voiced it. Here in Lexington, we were more or less all considered ourselves, or what I understand, we all considered ourselves as patriots. I'm guessing that had a lot to do with Jonas Clark and what he would have said. Some of that would have been preaching from the pulpit, but I'm sure some of it was also instruction as to what England was doing and how we were to view it. So after the Boston Tea Party, that's when General Gage became our governor. So we now had a military governor. We no longer had a civilian one. While he was our governor, he was spying on the Patriots, trying to find out what was going on. Of course, we were spying on him. And one of the things that his spies did discover is that the Patriots were stockpiling munitions and provisions in Concord and also in Worcester. And Worcester is more in the central of Massachusetts. So what he decided he would do is Concord, because it was about 18, 20 miles from Boston, he would be able to send some men out to Concord to destroy what was there and get them back to Boston before any militia could respond if he did it as a secret. So if it was a secret mission, he could send them out, they would destroy what we had in Concord, which would destroy a lot of the provisions and the munitions and black powder that we had stockpiled. He would destroy that and then that would either delay or perhaps stop an armed revolution. He, did, he just didn't want us to rise up in arms and have some sort of rebellion, armed rebellion. So did he know exactly where this stuff was hidden? Well, he was told it was out in Concord. Uh, he was told that in Concord it was James Barrett who was in charge of collecting all of the provisions and that. And I do believe he did know that on James Barrett's farm, or he was told that there was a couple of cannons there, some brass cannons. Those cannons were originally in the Boston Powder House, and the Patriots decided they'd been in the Boston Powder House so long, they really were ours, so we smuggled them out of Boston and into Concord. Sure, they had kind of an idea. When he did send the men out, before he had sent them out, about a week before April 19th of 1775, Paul Revere did ride out to Concord, 
And he did tell the Concord militia and James Barrett that there were rumors that Gage was going to send men out to Concord to destroy what we had there. We just didn't know when. So they better start moving it. So we started moving stuff around and hiding it. And it was about a week after that, on an evening of April 18th, that the secret mission began when uh, General Gage had sent 850 men out towards Concord to get the supplies that we had hidden out there. Well, yeah, one of my favorite hiding places that I'm aware of was to go back to Reverend Jonas Clark. He hid gunpowder under his pulpit, like, <laughs> like several barrels, apparently. That one I'm not so sure of, because I know in Lexington, our black powder was up on the third level. It would be the second balcony in our meeting house, because our meeting house was three stories high, so it was on the second balcony. That's where we stored it. We stored it in the meeting house because the meeting house was unheated. So there was no fireplace where a spark could set the black powder off. Where some of this does come into play is a little further on in the story later on that day is when the troops do get to Lexington. We did have some men in the meeting house who were refilling their powder horns with black powder so that they would be ready. Two of them did exit. The third one didn't leave the meeting house while the British troops were coming on to our green. And what he did is he did stand up there with his musket in the barrel of black powder so that if any red coat did come in, he was ready to blow up the meeting house and himself in it to take out any red coats with him. That never happened. Wow. But that was the plan, though. <laughs> that was the plan. No red coats entered our meeting house, so our black powder was safe. But just in case, we were ready. of April 18th, about 10 in the evening, is when he did have Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith, who he put in charge of the mission, get those 850 men, rousted out of bed, and onto the common, and they were then going to head towards Concord. Like I'd mentioned before, Gage was spying us, but we were also spying on him, so we knew what was going on. Word got back to Joseph Warren. Dr. Joseph Warren was one of the leading Sons of Liberty in Boston, and that's when he called for his two express riders, Paul Revere and William Dawes, and he sent those both out. Back in 1775, Boston was a little peninsula of land. There was a little tiny neck, and there was like a little island that wasn't really an island. It was an island if we got a flood, but it was just a little peninsula of land that connected Boston to the mainland. William Dawes, one of the riders, he's the one that exited out through there. Paul Revere, before he left Boston, went to the sexton of the North Church and asked him to put two lanterns in the North Church Tower. And those two lanterns would be a signal to the patriots over in Charlestown that the Redcoats were leaving that night. And that night they would be leaving by crossing the Charles River over into Cambridge and then marching towards Concord instead of going out through the neck of Boston where William Dawes was heading out. Because it, it would have taken them a lot longer to march through Boston down the neck and come around the bay, the back bay, to be able to march out towards Concord than if they were to cross the Charles River on boats. So that phrase, one if by land, two if by sea, the sea was actually just crossing the bay? Yes, it was. 
And what that was is once Paul Revere told the Saxons to do that, he did jump in a boat and he did cross the river, got to Charlestown, got on a horse and started heading out this way. Unlike the poem, he wasn't watching for the lights. He's the one that told what lights to put up there. And it was kind of a redundancy. If William Dawes didn't get out through the neck of Boston, if Paul Revere got captured rowing across the bay, because he did have to row behind one of the battleships that was floating in the bay, the Patriots over in Charlestown were watching for that. And when they saw those two lanterns, they sent out a rider. So there was three riders right at that point that went out and started to spread the word. So as if the two riders from Boston couldn't get out, there was one over on the other side in Charlestown on the other side of the river who was heading out to spread the word. So they had contingency plans. <laughs> yes. It all had to do with one of the raids that Gage did at one point. I don't know if it was Revere or another rider he sent out to the town to warn them, and the rider got captured, so the town never got notified. So I think it was someone else. And that's when Revere swore that that would never happen again, and he set up this whole network of riders. There was about 50 riders who went out that night because every time a rider got to another town and told that militia, that militia sent out a rider. So there was a whole network of riders going out that night. But Paul Revere was the brains behind it, so to speak, or the director? Yeah. Okay. Sometimes you hear that because of the Longfellow poem that Revere gets remembered and all the other guys kind of get forgotten. But I guess that makes a little bit more sense if he kind of ran the show. Yeah. Part of my understanding is Revere, we remember him a lot more because, one, he was a silversmith and a coppersmith and all. So we have objects that he left behind. He also gave a couple of depositions about what happened that night. So we have his story of what happened when he sent out those riders. William Dawes was a little more low-key. He was a tanner. Leather doesn't really last all that long, so we really don't have anything that he made. And I don't believe he ever gave a deposition, or told his story where it was written. So it's not a lot of history there. We kind of focused on Paul Revere a lot more. And it was I think that was a lot easier for Longfellow then to write about Revere. Plus, I've also heard that Revere is a lot easier to rhyme than Dawes. <laughs> yeah, it's spoken like a true songwriter or poet. <laughs> get here in Lexington at around midnight, just after midnight, and his main destination is our pastor's house, Reverend Jonas Clark, and staying with Reverend Clark that night was Samuel Adams and John Hancock, who were two of the leading Sons of Liberty. His main mission, really, when Warren sent him out, was to get those two to know that the troops were marching to Concord, that they were marching out to destroy what was out in Concord, but we also knew that General Gage had received from London orders to have Adams and Hancock arrested for treason. And we were concerned that on the way to Concord, Adams and Hancock would be arrested. So, and that we didn't want. We wanted them out of town. And we wanted them to know that Lexington was no longer a safe house for them. They had to go to the next safe house. Well, this is a good time to bring up the, the Sons of Liberty and how despised they were by the, the royals. In some of the talks when America and Britain were kind of on the verge, or at least considering reconciling before the actual revolution, one of the stipulations would be, 
okay, yes, we'll forgive everybody except Samuel Adams and a couple of the key members of the Sons of Liberty. Samuel Adams was a very charismatic man. He could get a crowd to do anything he wanted. And Samuel Adams had been wanting an independent country. He'd been wanting one for about a decade, for about 10 years or so. He had wanted an independent country. He did want an independent Quaker country, which we never ended up as, but he did want an independent country. So he's kind of always working, always agitating Boston, trying to let him know that how much the British were against us. At one point, with all the taxes and the things, and it was hampering John Hancock's ability to make money because he was one of the wealthiest men in North America. He was the wealthiest one in Boston. He had inherited his uncle's shipping company so he had this huge shipping company was importing and the taxes were affecting him it wasn't very hard to let him know about the patriot cause and what we could do and he he signed on and then he basically started bankrolling samuel adams and all his ideas so they were two of the main ones that i know were samuel adams was a lot of the ideas and john hancock was basically the money bankrolling him and other patriots so i can see where the king was kind of a little upset with them because you've got big rabble rouser and the one making sure the rabble rouser could do all he wanted of course this is probably well known but <clears throat> i guess the reason why when they finally did sign the declaration of independence and john hancock's signature is so enormous it was supposedly to let the king know like so there was no mistaking like i'm here I i'm defying you because <laughs> they were <laughs> at, at odds with each other so much yeah i have heard that i've heard that one i've also heard that he was the first one to sign so he signed big um <laughs> <laughs> and then everyone else decided they would sign. Because right. apparently he was going to be the only one that signed. I, I really don't know, but I do right. like the one where he said he signed it large enough so that George the Third would be able to see his signature. <laughs> so Revere gets here. About a half hour later, William Dawes does show up to confirm what's happening. When they do show up, we do, here in Lexington, on our green, there is a belfry. It's a small, single, standalone building with a bell in it. We ring that. That would be the bell that we would ring out. Um, if we wanted to call out the militia or if we were coming to Sunday service or if there was a funeral or anything. So they would have rung out the alarm to call out the militia. And Captain John Parker, the leader of our militia, and about 130 of our militia do show up on our green. We do hear from Revere and Dawes that the troops are heading out this way and heading towards Concord. And we are standing on the green for about an hour and an hour and a half. So after about that time... Captain Parker had sent out some scouts. None of them were coming back saying that they could see any redcoats coming. So in case it was a false alarm, because the last thing you want is like 130 farmers standing all night on a green and then the sunrise comes. It's been a false alarm and now they got to go do their day's work. He tells our men that they can stand down. If they live close by, they can go home. They don't live close by. If they're a little further away, stick around, stay close by, because he would have our drummer, William Diamond, drum out the call to come back if Redcoats do show up. So we do have some men go away. We have about 40 of them that go into Buckman Tavern, which is the tavern right next to our, the green here in Lexington, and they sit and wait. Now, the British troops, and this would be, this is probably about two in the morning. The British troops, they had been gathering 
like about, as I said, around 10 the evening before. And then they were going to cross the Charles River into Cambridge and then march out this way. Now, I am told that the Admiral of the Navy, who was supplying the longboats for General Gage to get his men across, wasn't a big fan of General Gage. I believe he, um, General Gage was a very honorable man. Um, he had certain rules that he lived by, and I believe the Admiral was trying to make money on the side that the General Gage didn't agree with. So he kind of upset the Admiral. So the Admiral didn't send him enough boats to get all his men across in one trip. So it took several trips to get the men all across. Now, the time of night, a misjudgment of the tides. When these fully loaded boats were heading across, so you've got all these redcoats standing shoulder to shoulder on the longboats, getting a road across. They get to the other side in Cambridge. Just as they're getting out there, the boats are starting to bottom out. So they got to climb out of the boats, and they're wading through the Charles River, about thigh deep in the river. And it's April, so I can probably guarantee you the Charles River is not very warm. And then getting on shore. So it takes several trips to get them across. And then once they get across, they get organized. It takes them a little while to do that. They're waiting for provisions to come. Then by the time everybody gets ready to to march and head off it is about two in the morning so about the time that captain parker is telling his men to stand down the redcoats are just leaving cambridge and marching out this way so they're just starting out on their journey to get on their mission to get out here so about how long would that take by foot to get from boston to lexington what the men did is the officers who were on horseback had the men march double time they got 800 men to march about a mile in 15 minutes and they got here to lexington about 5 30 in the morning so they left around two so that's what three and a half hours about three hours and you have over 800 men walking in wet wool pants and heavy leather boots that all got soaked in the river you start to feel <laughs> sorry for the british after a while you kind of do because I, I some of the reenactors that i have spoken with said the wool pants when it was wet some of the men they understand did slit some of the seams on their pants because the, the pants did shrink slightly. Yeah. But they're marching out. And as they're marching out, they are starting to realize that they have lost the element of surprise. Because as they're marching up from Cambridge and heading towards Concord, they are hearing musket fire. They are hearing bells like the one here in Lexington on our belfry ringing. They're seeing a lot of movement out there. It's all sorts of signals that are calling out the militia. So they're pretty sure that something's happened. They're not really a secret anymore. Also, while they're marching out towards Lexington and Concord, if there is any colonist who happens to be out that night, be it a scout or be it just a peddler moving from one town to the next at night or someone who just happens to be out at night, they're being taken prisoner by that column of men because they are trying still working under the assumption that they are still a secret. And the last thing they want is someone who happens to be out in the countryside and sees 850 men in red coats marching through the Massachusetts countryside, heading inland. That doesn't happen very often. So as soon as that person races to the next town, that would alert our militia. And that's what they didn't really want to do. So they were taking prisoners on the route. Now, we did tend to fib slightly back then, occasionally. And some of the prisoners did tell the red coats that there would be armed men on Lexington Green when they arrived. 
And this concerned the leader of the expedition, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith. So what he did is he sent a rider back to Boston to ask for reinforcements, and then he got his second-in-command, Major John Pitcairn of the Marines, to take about 200 men and to go in advance. And what their orders were is to go in advance to Concord, and in Concord they were to make sure that they secured the North Bridge. And they were to secure the North Bridge because – Part of the mission when they hit to Concord was to go to James Barrett's farm, and he was on the other side of the Concord River on the other side of the North Bridge. He wanted to make sure that the bridge was secure and that the Patriots in Concord didn't do anything silly like pull up all the planks so they couldn't get across the river. Paul Revere and William Dodds came here to town, gave Adams and Hancock the information that the troops were coming, they had to get out of town, it wasn't safe. One of the things that happened is John Hancock then stood up and decided that he was going to go stand on the green with his men because he was kind of one of the leaders of the Sons of Liberty. He decided he was going to go stand out there. Now, John Hancock at the time, he was only about 33 years old. He wasn't very old. Samuel Adams was in his mid-40s, knew that you don't put a man with absolutely no military experience on a green in front of an advancing army with just a, a militia. And uh, you really don't do it when that young man's the man with all the money that's backing you and your ideas. So they start arguing over whether or not John Hancock should go out on the green. Samuel Adams is like saying we're, we're leaders of the Sons of Liberty. We need to be safe. We need to get moving to the next town. So they start arguing. While they're arguing, that's when Dawes and Revere decide they still have to get to Concord and let Concord know. So they leave Lexington and head off. As they're leaving Lexington, they do bump into a gentleman by the name of Dr. Samuel Prescott. He's a doctor in Concord, and apparently about one in the morning, he was just leaving his fiance's house here in Lexington. So he was just leaving, visiting her and heading back home, met up with Revere and Dawes. They were all patriots. Prescott said he would ride with them to let Concord know what was going on. So they all head towards Concord. It's about two miles outside of Lexington on the way to Concord that the three of them do meet up with a British patrol. They had already decided if they see a British patrol, they would split up. So Dawes rides off in one direction. He does escape. A little later, he is bucked from his horse, and we're not exactly sure what he does for the rest of the night. Uh, Revere rides towards a thicket where there just happens to be the rest of the British patrol. He gets captured, and it's Dr. Samuel Prescott. He escapes, and he is the one that does get to Concord to let Concord know that the troops are on their way. Revere is captured. The patrols start questioning him. They find out who he is. A lot of the Redcoats know all about Paul Revere. They're very impressed that they've got Paul Revere, one of the leading express riders, one of the leading Sons of Liberty. And as they're interrogated, Revere kind of takes over the interrogation. Then he starts telling them all about the mission, about the men coming out towards Concord and why they're coming. Now, this mission was a secret mission. So when Gage set up some patrols to go out into the countryside, basically just like as the column was marching out, they were just to get anyone who was out there 
take them prisoner and hold them to one side so that the troops could get out there and no word would be spreading just in case there were patriot spies out there trying to get to Concord, they would be captured. What the British patrol then did, were then doing, is they were just told that that's what they had to do, is just capture anybody who's out that night. They weren't really told the details of the mission, just that there was a mission heading to Concord. They really didn't know the details. And now here's Paul Revere telling them the whole mission. Not only that, Paul Revere was one of the ones who did kind of fib to the Redcoats. And at one point, he did tell the Redcoats that there were going to be like 700 armed men on our green. And that's when the British patrol thought perhaps they should ride off to let Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith know. Now, we really don't know why Paul Revere failed. We think maybe it was because it was a small patrol just to kind of delay them a little, make them second guess about heading anywhere towards Lexington. He was buying time for Samuel Adams and John Hancock to get out of town. So these men then do decide, the British patrol do decide to take other prisoners that they got and Paul Revere and head back towards Boston so that they could notify Smith about all these armed men that were supposed to be on Lexington Green. They start riding towards Lexington. As they get towards Lexington, they do hear gunfire. They believe that this is the start of the battle and that you really can't travel very fast when you have prisoners. So they released all the prisoners. So the prisoners were all released. In Paul Revere's case, what they did is they took his horse and put him on foot. So he walks back to Lexington, and these men ride off to alert Francis Smith. Wow. This is one of those things. This is around around 2 in the evening. And the gunfire that they had heard, the musket fire that they had heard, wasn't the battle. What had happened is, if you remember way back when I was telling you that Captain Parker had his men on the green and they were standing there and he decided to let them stand down instead of just having them all stand out there all night because we didn't know if the Redcoats were coming. What that gunfire was is the musket was a fairly temperamental gun. You could knock it over, bang it, and it would go off. And a tradition here was that before you entered a public house, you fired off your gun. So what that patrol heard was about... 40 men, 30, 40 men firing off their muskets to make sure that it wasn't loaded, heading into Buckman Tavern to wait to see what would happen. So you've got that sort of happening there. Revere's been released. He's no longer a prisoner. He walks back to Lexington. He gets to Jonas Clark's house. Now, he's been gone for several hours. And Samuel Adams and John Hancock are still arguing over whether or not John Hancock should go out on the green. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. At this point, Paul Revere throws in a little bit about, like, I've just been captured. Let me tell you about what I've been through all night. you got to go. Karen in advance starts marching towards Lexington. He gets about a mile outside of town when he's seen by one of our scouts. Our scout rides back to Buckman Tavern, alerts Captain Parker. He has our drummer, William Diamond, drum out the call to come back. It is... At that time, when he's drumming the call to come back, that initially Captain Parker has probably about a couple dozen, maybe 30 men first respond. By the end of what happens on our green, about 80 men have responded. But initially, we've got about 30 men standing on the green. Dang. They finally convince Hancock to go. So they load him into his carriage. He's about to leave. When it's remembered, he has a trunk of papers in Buckman Tavern. They are in Buckman Tavern with his secretary, John Lowell, and the papers in there 
if you go through those papers, you will find all the names of the Sons of Liberty. And that was the last thing we needed to have fall into the British troops' hands, because that would end back to Gage's hands, and he would know everyone that he would have to arrest for treason. So Revere's like, don't worry about it. Just go get out of town. Him and John Lowell go back to Buckman Tavern. They get the trunk. They leave Buckman Tavern, cross the green, back to the far side of the green, and hide back in a swamp with the trunk. And this is the thing to tell you how close it was that Samuel Adams then got out. As Revere and Lowell are walking across the green, they are walking through the line of men that Captain Parker is lining up on the green. So they are crossing through that line of men as Parker's lining them up, which means there are redcoats coming up our street towards the green. The Battle of Lexington is just about to happen. They just get back into the swamp when the, the battle starts. It's almost like a movie screenplay. It's, it's perfect. It, it is. It's great. The number of coincidences and things that kind of happen, it's, it's amazing. Lexington, our green is just a nice big triangle. So they're at the wide end of the triangle, lined up along there. Captain Parker has them kind of spread out along there. At the point of the triangle is where our meeting house stands, where the three-story building stands. So you've got our men lined up along there. They're looking down the road that's coming up from Boston. There is our meeting house in the way. It is early morning. So you can imagine how they're feeling. You've got these men standing there and you're a little anxious about what's going to happen. The Redcoats, as they're marching into town, and they're marching into town and they've been told that like there's armed men on our green. They don't know how many. Um, there was wildly varying amounts that they were told. Now they're marching into town and what they see ahead of them is our meeting house. So they really can't see behind the meeting house to know how many men are on the green. Now their orders are to march past our green and head to Concord. As they get there against orders, what they do is they kind of split and go around our meeting house and then line up on our green. So now you've got all these men starting to line up on our green. Major Pitcairn, who's riding at the back of the column, sees that these men are not following orders. They're stopping on the green. They're not continuing past. So he rides up to tell his men to follow orders and head to Concord. And it's when Major Pitcairn rides up that he does see Captain Parker and his men lined up on our green. And he does tell us to disperse. He tells us to lay down our arms and to disperse. I believe he tells us three times to do that. It's after the third time that Captain Parker realizes that he's got a bunch of farmers. We do believe in the cause of that, but we're not really here for a suicide mission. We are now facing about 200 of the best trained army. So he, he does give the order to disperse. We're not told to lay down our arms. We're just told to disperse. So now our men are turning and leaving the green. And as we're turning and leaving the green is when the first shot of the American Revolution goes off. And it's that shot that to this day, we still have no idea who fired it. All we know is that each side blamed the other. But when that shot went off, the Redcoats lined up on our green, thought they were under attack, and immediately started firing. So they're now firing into the backs of our militia. 
that Karen's horrified because he's never given the order to fire. By the time he finally gets his men to stop firing, there are now eight dead on our green and 10 injured, all of them from our militia. Now, we did have some men who did fire back. We did fire back in self-defense. There was a couple of men on the green who did not turn and leave as Parker had ordered because there was a couple. I know Jonas Parker was one of them who was heard to say that he would never turn his back on a red coat. So he stood there and fired when they fired at us after they fired at us. Jonas Parker was he was over 60. So he's about I think he was 62. So he didn't really even have to be there between 16 and 60. You were part of the militia over 60. You're kind of on the alarm list. So if we really needed you, we would call you. But you were old enough that you you didn't have to be there. But he wanted to be there. So he stood there. He was actually Captain Parker's cousin. He got one shot fired off. I believe he did get injured. He was down on his knees trying to reload his musket when he was bayoneted. And that's, he was one of our eight who died that morning. Now, of the shots that we did get off in self-defense, we injured one, maybe two red coats, and they were really minor. And then the, basically, once the firing had stopped, Smith had caught up. 200 men that were on our green, they organized themselves. One of the things that kind of just kind of rubs salt in the wound a little for us here in Lexington, is before they left, Smith and Pitcairn were both experienced men, militiamen. A lot of the uh, redcoats that were in Boston were fairly new recruits. They weren't in the military very long. So th- this was all like their first in- the first time they were ever in any sort of battle or anything. They knew that men would have a lot of... Uh, emotions going on the red coats and that so what they did is they allowed the men to have three rousing cheers for the king and then off they marched and that's kind of as i said kind of rubs the salt wound for here in lexington because one is the cheers for the king and two you just killed eight of our men and injured 10 and now you're cheering so we didn't didn't go over very well here and then the men marched off to concord We're going to put a bookmark in our epic tale for now, but we'll finish it up on the next episode of In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, in addition to reflecting on contemporary understandings of these historical going-ons and a little of Miss Bear's own story and how it intersected with everything we've been talking about today. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. (laughs) 